Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Narjos Flores. And today, I'm your host for this very special episode of Lung Cancer Considered. I'm the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Today, we'll be discussing the importance of supportive care and psychosocial support for patients with lung cancer. Although lung cancer remains the leading cause of cancer death in both men and women in the United States and many countries worldwide. With the many advances in the treatment of the disease, we have reached a historical number of lung cancer survivors. More than ever, we need to assure that our patients receive the support that they need and they learn how to live with lung cancer with the treatment side effects and the idea of early mortality. Several aspects are unique to people with lung cancer, from the stigma associated with the disease to the knowledge gap that we have about lung cancer survivorship because we didn't study for many years, the unique survivor's guilt that many patients also experience. Today, we'll be discussing the importance of palliative care and psychology when it comes to people living with lung cancer. It is my true pleasure to introduce two esteemed guests today. First, we have Dr. Osman, palliative care physician at Dana Cancer Institute and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Her work focuses on the development of palliative care in her home country of Lebanon and across the Middle East through policy development, advocacy, and capacity building. I have the honor to share many patients with Dr. Osman. Her care is extraordinary, empathetic, realistic, and out of this world. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concierge, Dr. Osman. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. It is also my honor to introduce Dr. Christine Bergerot. She's the head of supportive care at Oncoclinicas in Brazil. She has completed a three-year research fellowship in the Department of Medical Oncology at City of Hope, Comprehensive Cancer Center, and many other years of training. She has been working with patients with cancer for almost 19 years as a clinician and as a researcher. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, Dr. Bergerot. Hi, Heinrich. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. As we know each other, we're going to be referring by first name. Uh, after I did the formal introduction. So Hibat, I would like to start with discussing simple concepts for our audience so they can follow the conversation. How will you define palliative care? Yeah, I, I think it's an important um, question to start with because there are so many misconceptions about what palliative care is. And very often when patients come to see me for the first time, they don't quite understand. Some people think they're coming to see the pain doctor. Uh, some people worry that if they're seeing palliative care, it means that they're really, really sick and their oncologist is worried about them. 
But really, palliative care, uh, broadly defined, it's a medical specialty that focuses on quality of life and relieving suffering among patients with any serious illness. So cancer is just one of them, but other serious illnesses as well. So we focus on three main things. One is managing symptoms um, from the disease itself or the side effects of treatment. Managing symptoms includes pain, so we're the pain management experts, but symptoms can also include shortness of breath or loss of appetite or fatigue or nausea, vomiting, etc. So we're the people who work with the oncologist to focus on managing the symptoms. We also um, like to follow patients over a long period of time, so longitudinally to get to know them and understand their values and what's important to them, because as they progress through their treatments, our hope is that we can play a role in making sure that they make choices uh, about their treatments that are in line with what is important to them. So um, goal concordant care is the technical term that we use, but it's to make sure that we don't do anything that uh, would not be within their um, vo or goals or wishes. And then also we address the psychosocial aspect of living with a serious illness. So it's not just pain and nausea and vomiting. When people live with a serious illness, they, they can also have anxiety or depression related to their illness. As we all know, uh, patients don't live uh, outside of a context. They live within a family. So the whole family is affected by the illness. And so we help them navigate that. We help prepare them for what's to come so that they feel more empowered and uh, having information and feeling like they know what to expect uh, helps with that. So we play all of these roles. But ultimately, the short definition is our goal is to improve quality of life and relieve suffering for patients living with serious illness. Thank you so much for that very detailed description. And I think you're very very clear about sometimes patients may be afraid of going to the palliative care doctor or the palliative care teen. And I think it's important to have communication between the patient and the teen and all members of the teen to mention the importance of this. And this is a great segue for the data that we're gonna be discussing. This study was published by Dr. Temel from Mass General that showed that early incorporation of palliative care with patients with metastatic or stage four lung cancer was associated with overall survival and better quality of life. Could you describe the results of that study to our audience? Yeah, um, thank you for calling out that study. That's a study that we love in the palliative care community. It's actually, it was published back in 2010. So that's almost 14 years ago now. And this was a study done specifically on lung cancer patients, and they were randomized to one of two groups. Either they received early palliative care, which is palliative care within eight weeks of diagnosis is how they defined it, or standard care, which means they may or may not receive palliative care through the course of their um, illness. And back then, in, in 2010, lung cancer behaved very differently. So um, now we have new treatments that have changed uh, the way people live with lung cancer, that have changed uh, survival rates dramatically. But back then, 
what we had to treat lung cancer was uh, chemotherapy and people who were diagnosed with lung cancer, actually their survival was very short. Um, and when the study was done, the researchers were looking at two main things. They were hoping to see if early palliative care improved quality of life, which is what I said a bit earlier is the focus of what we do, focusing on improving quality of life. And the other um, main outcome they were looking at was depression and if early palliative care reduced depression. What was shocking for the researchers was that as they proceeded through the course of the study, they found that people who received early palliative care actually lived longer. And this is back when people with lung cancer had very short survival. People who received early palliative care lived on average three to four months longer than people who received routine care. And this was shocking and a, a very nice uh, surprise for the researchers, because until then, people, there was a misconception that palliative care was um, early or passive euthanasia um, is, is how people saw it. So they considered palliative care a specialty that kind of tried to convince patients not to get more aggressive therapies, that uh, convinced people to stay home instead of going into the hospital, that that was really our role. And so there was a big assumption that people, once they choose palliative care, that means they're not going to live for long and they're probably going to die sooner. And this was the study that turned all of those misconceptions around. And we could actually see that patients who received early palliative care not only lived better, but they lived longer. Um, since the Temel study, there have been multiple studies that have also shown this in um, different kinds of cancer. So the Temel study was in lung cancer patients. We've seen it, seen it in different kinds of cancer. The outcomes are positive pretty consistently. And as a result of that, the recommendations of the big cancer bodies, so ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, uh, came up with a recommendation for early integration of palliative care. So soon after a patient is diagnosed, regardless of whether their cancer is treatable or not, uh, regardless of whether we expect cure or not, that palliative care should be engaged early because we know that outcomes are more positive if palliative care is engaged early. Before that point, usually patients did not get referred to palliative care until uh, treatment options were exhausted or they were very, very sick. And then that's when they called in palliative care. And that study made it very clear that having palliative care early on had um, significant benefits. I I agree with you. I actually called this study uh, for, I would say, 90% of my new patient consults um, because we talk about we're going to do everything we can for you to live better, to live longer. That means everything. That means we're going to get your support. We're going to get all of this, you know, and that's when I called the study and I bring it up for my patients at day one, not like when we ran into issues. And I think that's very key. This question is to the two of you. The data has been reproduced. The study is now 14 years old. Why hasn't the adoption of palliative care have been widely, you know, why is not widely used? the early incorporation of palliative care in patients 
with lung cancer despite the data supporting this? I will start with Chris and then I will go to you, Hibab. Chris, why are we not using this? What is your thoughts about it? Yeah, I think this is really interesting. Even if we consider the recent study that was published by Ethan Bash in 2017, in which he has showed that if we screen our patients uh, every week about their unmet needs, we are also able to increase their overall survival. So it's more than, um, than clear to everyone that offering supportive care for our patients can impact not only on their emotional symptoms, but also on their overall survival. But it's uh, when we try to put this into our practice, it's really challenging, I think, basically because there is some of this mis misconception that do Dr. Osman has highlighted. For example, um, here in Brazil, uh, our physicians or even our patients still believe that if we send them to the palliative care, they they have no other options of treatment. So it's end of it is the end is the last option they have in their life. So it's something that we really need to try to break every day and every time and try to discuss with all uh, our healthcare team. Uh, and also with our patients in order to improve this um, this result. So, but we're still uh, we have break uh, a lot of barriers, and I, and as Dr. Osman has has uh, has mentioned, so these studies has really helped us uh, uh, in this discussion. Uh, but we are still facing a lot of barriers. Hibab, why do you think we're not using it? Why are you not getting? a referral for every single patient with lung cancer. I, I think I agree with Chris. I mean, resistance from patients, and I'm sure, Narjus, you, you, you alluded to that, that you need to convince them because why, why there's added value um, uh, when you're referring them to palliative care. So there's resistance definitely from patients and families. In our context, when patients are insured, that's less likely to be because they can't afford it. But in many places, it's because it's they see it as an additional cost that they want to try and avoid. But there's actually very strong data that shows that palliative care uh, engaged early on reduces the cost of care uh, over time. There's also habits. So doctors and medical teams kind of have um, habits of practice. And if they're not used to referring patients to palliative care, they're going to forget. So you said that it's your standard practice when you have a patient early on, you tell them, I'm going to send you to palliative care. And that becomes part of your protocol, part of how you engage patients to begin with. That's not the case for everybody. I think uh, people who are uh, maybe of the older generation of physicians are less used to it. Uh, systems might not facilitate it and make it easy. I still hear from many doctors in Lebanon, less so here uh, at Dana-Farber. I think we have a very strong collaborative relationship with our oncologist. But in Lebanon, I'll hear from oncologists all the time that, no, 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 the patient's not at the palliative care stage yet. Um, they're still doing okay. And so many doctors still have that misconception when um, I think Chris and I can both tell you that a big part of the benefit of palliative care is uh, the longitudinal aspect. When we build a relationship with patients and families early on, and they get to know us and we get to know them, we can do a much better job giving them the care that they need 
than if we catch them very late in the illness when they're really, really sick. And uh, all we're doing is trying to manage pain and and make very difficult, painful decisions uh, with them. And, and we don't know them well and they don't know us well. I think that's very important. And I can tell you this because we share a patient and he uh, is not violent, no he, but he told me, I just feel better every time I see her. And that's that relationship that you have developed with those patients. That is so invaluable. I don't think he feels the same way when he sees me, but he just took a deep breath and say, I just feel better. And that long lasting relationship makes him feel like he's not alone. There's, you know, people backing him up for every corner. That's so, so lovely to hear. Thank you. <laughs> yes. That is like he told me, like, I just feel better. And I'm like, sorry, now I'm going to give you chemo. So sorry. Um, <laughs> So, Grace, you have been working with patients with cancer for nearly 19 years. What is the role of psychology and psycho-oncology while treating patients with lung cancer? So, psychology plays a crucial role in the comprehensive care of patients uh, with cancer and also with lung cancer. Uh, I would say that our main role is to provide emotional support. But we, all, we also work to identify unmet needs or even uh, emotional symptoms or physical symptoms that we can help managing, uh, especially for timely intervention. We also work to offer psychosocial intervention to help patients manage their distress or even uh, symptoms of anxiety or even depression or even to assist patients in making positive lifestyle change, especially thinking uh, of patients with lung cancer. But we also work to improve communication with healthcare providers uh, and also to offer support to patients and their family as they navigate end-of-life care or even addressing grief and uncertainty. And I would say that psycho-oncology work in the same role. However, it does not include only the psychology in this uh, specialty. We also include the nurse, um, the the dietitian, the social worker, and all other all other psychosocial um, all the other supportive care team that are interested in the same way uh, in the same field in and trying to improve our patient symptoms and also to help them to navigate throughout this disease continuum. Thank you. And one question I always wonder is. When is the right time for a patient with lung cancer to meet with psychology? In which part of the journey should patients connect with somebody like you? Yeah, this is a great question. So all patients with cancer should have the opportunity to, to, to meet with us. And there is no specific time. Uh, it will be really great if we are able to connect them shortly after the diagnosis but otherwise, it also uh, it also works pretty well when they are making treatment decisions, since this uh, can be very stressful for our patients and challenging, and could be also like a challenging moment for them and for their family. Uh, but we can also help our patients doing active treatment or doing the transition to survivorship or even when the disease progression progress. So every time is a good time to meet with us. <laughs> I I honestly think that. Not only patients, I think, and I'm going to open this door here. I think there's a role for psychology for providers too. We deal with high emotions, high stressful settings, and 
I honestly don't think I can do my job without my psychologist, to be very honest with you. So I think it's not only for patients, it's also for providers. What do you think, Chris? Yes, perfect. Yeah, I think it, it, it helps everyone. It will have like a different focus. And for sure that uh, for physicians, it's really stressful since uh, for, for the patient, this person has like the key to save their life. So it's really stressful to have this in our hand. Even if we explain then what is our main goal uh, during the treatment, but um, they will always look for their physician as the key of their of their life, like of, of their success in this treatment. Yeah, I think it should be like Oprah. You get a psychologist. You get a psychologist instead of the car. It's like everybody should be on therapy. I think it makes us better doctors and it makes us better human. But that's my opinion. And you know, this is not an opinion-based podcast. <laughs> so my following question is to the both of you. Lung cancer is associated with significant stigma. I had treated patients that due to the fear of stigma have not disclosed the diagnosis to their close family members or friends. How can palliative care and psycho-oncology help patients with the stigma associated with the disease? I will start with Hiba. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I feel with my patients, uh, my sense is it's not just the stigma, but also sharing this difficult news is very painful. I've had a patient tell me in the past that uh, every person I told, I had to relive the experience of getting the diagnosis all over again. And they feel that um, they have to support um, their loved one when they're telling them because receiving the news is very difficult for their loved one. So I think it's partly the stigma and being labeled as a lung cancer patient. And that's that's something that people want to be seen in a different light and they want to be seen as healthy and resilient, et cetera. But also sharing the news is a very difficult step for patients and sometimes being aware of that and naming it and seeing if we can help them do that and support them through the process of telling their loved ones can be really important for them. I think that's a very good point that even telling the news is stressful to patients and, you know, feel by everything else that comes with the diagnosis. Chris, what are your thoughts about how stigma affects these patients with lung cancer from the mental health care perspective? Yeah, it's I think I think it's a really tough situation because the stigma is there and it makes everything hard for a patient since uh and, and it's it's uh and we have seen that this stigma is also associated with higher prevalence of anxiety and of depression. And patients suffer with this stigma, even if they have never like smoke in their life, they're still like facing this kind of uh, tough situation. Um, I would say that psychology and palliative care will have like a similar roles or they can uh, also like help. Uh, I think as a team, we can help each other to help these patients to, to really get the support they need and also to help this patient in addressing these negative thoughts or even to manage uh, all the emotional symptoms uh, that came um, not only 
uh, with the diagnose, but also with this stigma. And I think the most important, I think we we need to help these patients to be to build their own self-esteem. Um, and for sure, uh, I think we'll also help our patients to, communi- to communicate their diagnosis with their family and also with their friends in a way that they feel well uh, and they, they feel good in doing so. And also trying to provide some guidance on addressing all types of discriminations that they may suffer. I think something that I want to ask is for, we have patients that listen to the podcast and something that I have learned by working very closely with psycho-oncologists is that you provide patients coping mechanisms. So learn tools that can use not only about, you know, facing the stigma, but the anxiety of the cancer, the treatment, the side effects. Can you just share with us what are some of these things that you can learn from working for psycho-oncology that patients can recycle through their cancer journey? Yeah, I would say that we can try first to understand a little bit more how this is impacting him and how they're coping uh, with this situation in order to better determine which strategy we can use. But for sure, um, we can help them. We can use some techniques, for example, mindfulness, or or even some like uh, some techniques from the cognitive behavior therapy in order to make them overcome this uh, this barrier and to feel better uh, with the way that they're with the way they are right now, uh, independent of their diagnosis or even independent on their disease stage. So I think it's something that we can do together with our patient. There is like no specific uh, rule or no specific recipe uh, to cope with. But for sure, I think trying to understand exactly the patient's characteristics and the way that they will find ways to, to feel better with uh, the disease they have and uh, with the treatment they are receiving, it will be really powerful during all the phases of the disease continuum. And I think that's something that, you know, I talk to my patients because a lot of my patients don't want another pill because they know pills come with side effects and able to work with or colleagues in supportive care, psycho-oncology, it is essential, you know, to provide those tools that I think is more appealing to patients that one more pill, one more side effect. And I have heard some of my patients share these tools that they have learned from psycho-oncology with their family members. Like I have a patient like, oh, yeah, I taught him how to do this so he doesn't get the panic attacks that he was getting. So there are tools that can be reused and, you know, it's not another pill that they may have to take. As we continue with the conversation, Hibab, we talk about this early, and this is about the misconception about palliative care and end-of-life care. And Mm. sometimes that's how patients see palliative care. How can doctors or colleagues that are listening to us right now explain the clear difference between palliative care and hospice and how to deal with that misconception? Because sometimes before I even finish talking, I have patients that say, no, 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 you're not giving up on me so soon. How can I, how can we explain that to patients? 
Yeah. And, and, and I'll tell you, even when um, you have the conversation with patients and you assure them that the reason they're coming to see me is not because you think that they're dying or um, that the, the treatment is hopeless, they still come to me terrified. And I still have to repeat what I know you told them on the other end. I think there's a lot of stigma associated with the term palliative care. And uh, a lot of people get on their computers and Google and look things up and come across things that might misinform them. So a lot of people come to us and think they're more familiar with the term hospice. And hospice, by definition, is is end-of-life care. There, it, it's different in different contexts. In the U.S., it's, it's basically an insurance benefit. So if you think somebody has less than six months to live, they qualify for a certain kind of insurance. But hospice is also a philosophy of care that's support that's about supporting patients at the end of life. Hospice is part of palliative care. So palliative care is the bigger, broader umbrella. And um, we take care of patients, even if they have curable disease, we take care of patients, I already said at the beginning, uh, cancer and non-cancer. Um, but if they progress through the illness and they get to the end of life, then having more intensive palliative care uh, with the hospice approach is, is something that's offered to them. What One of the ways I uh, reassure my patients is I share the definitions of the two and how they're different. And I tell them, you know, part of what we do is hospice, but what we do is much broader. And then I share that we take care of patients who receive palliative care and are cured and they graduate from palliative care and they don't need us anymore. But very often the treatment is so difficult or even the diagnosis and, and getting through um, that phase is so difficult for patients that uh, getting palliative care in addition to uh, cancer care their oncologist can focus on treating the cancer and we can focus on making sure they're as comfortable as they can possibly be while their cancer is being treated. And then once they don't need us anymore, we graduate them. Um, and, and that tends to reassure people. And usually within a first, the first few visits, they see the benefit and then there's no need to convince them. They, they see the value for sure. But um, it's that... It's that transition between when you refer them and when they come to us that's very stressful for them. Thank you for sharing that. And I think I'm actually going to go back and listen to that so I can put it in my arsenal again to learn and to communicate better. And along the same lines, Chris, in many cultures, including ours, mental health is full of stigma and the belief that only individuals suffering from severe mental health illness will benefit from their care or a psychologist. You are practicing in Brazil. I'm from Venezuela. We have listeners from across the globe. How do you break down and how do you remove the misconceptions about mental health and cancer care when talking with patients? Yeah, I think this is a really crucial test. Uh, so here in Brazil, we have included psychosocial support as an integral part of the cancer care. So 
our patients receive consultations with a psychologist during their cancer treatment and are assessed for emotional symptoms at specific time points. And we have proved that this is feasible and it's also like it can also impact on financial uh, stuff. So um, we have published this year one study that uh, this kind of program can reduce almost a thousand dollars, a million dollars, sorry, a million dollars, which really make uh, a little bit more interesting for the directors like to have a psychologist and a nutritionist to, to help our patients during their disease uh, treatment. We also maintain a strong collaboration with the healthcare team, uh, including the oncologists and nurses. And we also encourage a regular discussion about mental health and provide educational programs and workshops. All these are some strategies that we are using right now to try to remove this misconception that we know that it still exists, but at least we are able to identify unmet needs on our patients and also emotional symptoms and try to determine the best uh, treatment plan for them in a timely fashion in order to to improve their outcomes and also their quality of life. Thank you for sharing that. And life changed forever after the pandemic. And that came with the incorporation of telemedicine that had change how we treat many of our patients with lung cancer. From your respected specialties, how telemedicine has changed how you provide care? I will start with Hibad and then followed by you, Chris. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, it's really turned the way we practice around. Uh, one, for us in palliative care, a lot of our patients are uh, quite sick um, and our no-show rates, for instance, in clinic are very high. So a patient might have an appointment in clinic and then they uh, have a complication and get admitted to the hospital or they feel too sick to come in. And so telehealth has helped reduce that significantly and made it much easier for patients to stay connected with us just by jumping on the video screen. So that's been wonderful. Also, for me as a clinician, I feel that when a patient is in their environment and I'm seeing them uh, via telehealth, it gives me a lot more information about um, who they are, who they have in their life, what kind of support they have. And I think that makes me a better provider for them. So that additional information that I would have never had if I was just seeing them in clinic is very useful. But the flip side is um, we have less of the face-to-face. And I think we have all learned from our Zoom world that seeing somebody face-to-face is uh, very valuable and important for the personal connection. Also in medicine, the physical exam and being able to examine patients, we lose that through telehealth. And I think there's a portion of the population that has struggles with technology that uh, telehealth has made life more difficult for. I think we all assume that, of course, you can join me in a Zoom visit. I, I do that all the time. I tell patients, we'll do a Zoom visit. And they say, no, you know, I don't, I don't have a smartphone. I don't have a computer. So I make these assumptions, and I think a lot of us do. 
but but some patients have a really hard time navigating the telehealth and the technology of it. I think that's a very important point. And you know, that also brings the point of equity because having access to internet and your phone, it can be quite expensive. You can run out of the data that you pay for that month just with a telemedicine visit. Chris, you know, you're in Brazil, a very large country, and Uncle Clinicas, where you work, has sites everywhere. How and if have you incorporated telemedicine when it comes with psychology for patients with cancer? Yeah, uh, so telemedicine, at least for us, has brought a significant transformation in how we care for our patient. We, since we, we returned to Brazil, uh, we have de developed uh, several studies uh, in order to, uh, to in, in which we have used the telemedicine to provide supportive care to our patient, and it it was it has been really great this experience. Uh, it has enabled us to provide this kind of support to our patient, especially those in remote or underserved areas. Uh, it has also enhanced convenience as patients can schedule sessions during their free time without the need for additional travel. Um, it has also ensured the continuity of care and it has enabled patients to connect with experts who might not be locally available. Uh, in one of our study, for example, uh, we were able to, so a geriatric uh, a geriatrician was able to offer a standard of care to one of our patients who lives like in the middle of Amazonia. And and I think it, if it was not through telehealth, for sure, these patients won't be able to get access to this kind of service. And in addition, it has also facilitated the monitoring of emotional symptoms, allowing for timely intervention. But for sure, it's totally different from the in-person care. We are still providing in-person care, but we tried to use um, this kind of resource to help us to really um, to really monitor our patients and to be in touch with them. And for those who are not able to come to our clinics to also try to offer um, some, uh, uh, some psychosocial support instead of just like waiting uh, one day that they will be able like to, to come to visit us. So it has been really great. Thank you for sharing that. I can talk to the two of you for hours, but this, unfortunately, this is my last question. So in the last decade, we have seen an increasing number of studies in palliative care and psycho-oncology related to the care of patients with lung cancer and other advanced cancers. What is one study that you have come across that you are excited about the results and you want to share with your audience. Hiba, then I will start with you. So that's a difficult question because there's more than one study, but, and I will um, specifically when we're talking about lung cancer patients, uh, and I talked about this early on, that the treatment of lung cancer, I'm sure you've spoken about this a lot in the past, has really, really changed. And it's, it's really important for our work in palliative care to prepare our patients for what's to come and what to expect. And I think with the evolution of the cancer care, that's become more difficult. With the new therapies that are available, uh, patients can do really well. We don't know um, 
if they're going to stay well for a long time or if they're going to get sicker very quickly. And, and not knowing has been really hard for patients and families because even when the patient is doing really well, they're kind of sitting there not knowing when the shoe is going to drop. Um, and, and so I'm going to say instead of one study, um, the work of Laura Petrillo, who is a friend and colleague at Mass General Hospital and actually works with uh, Jennifer Temmel and her team doing research, She's been doing research on uh, how patients are living with their cancer, uh, with these new therapies, and how we can support them better and how we can um, prepare them better for what to expect with these treatments. And I, I tried to come up with one that I would suggest to you is my uh, top study, but I think I'm going to just suggest her body of work as very informative moving forward. Dr. Petrillo's work is remarkable, and she's actually chairing one of the upcoming work conference on lung cancer palliative care tracks. So we have learned so much for her, from her. So thank you for highlighting her, her work. Chris, what is that one study that, oh, body of work that you would like to share that you're excited about? Uh, it is, I think it is the most difficult question. So I, I think it's not, uh, I would, bring back the the study that we have highlighted from Dr. Tamo it is really uh, it really provides scientific evidence that supportive care can impact overall survival uh, if if i am also able to see two other ones i would bring back uh, the study that i have mentioned from Ethan Bash that also has shown uh, that if we screen for emotional and physical symptoms we can also impact on overall survival and there is another study that was also like published by Dr. Petrillo. And I really, it's really fascinating because she has, she is discussing, she, she has conducted a multiple perspective qualitative study uh, on prognostic communication about lung cancer in the precision oncology area. And I think this is really great because she brought a lot of um, challenges, topics that we face uh, nowadays with this new era of treatment. And she she brought it this in like in a very soft way uh, and in a very interesting way that we can use in our practice and help us uh, with our patients. It has been my pleasure to share this space with you. And I would like to thank Dr. Bergerot and Dr. Osman for their time and recommendations. Um, I will give you one minute to say goodbye to our audience and anything you would like to share. Uh, Hibat? Um, thank you so much for um, having us on this show. Um, it was uh, great talking to all of you and uh, listening to Chris uh, and, and getting your perspective from Brazil, Chris. Um, I appreciate the opportunity. Chris? Yeah, I also would like to thank uh, everyone, uh, not just for inviting us and to create like this opportunity to discuss more about supportive care, palliative care and lung cancer and also the opportunity to 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 know a little bit more about Dr. Osman. Uh, it, it was really a great pleasure. Thank you so much to all of you. And I have to say, the podcast has been sometimes the first place for future collaboration. So uh, we cannot close that door there and hope, hopefully you guys remain connected. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. 
I hope you will tune in regularly to give us a listen. You can find us in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and of course, in our website, islc.org, under the tab, Newsroom. Thank you once again. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.